with his blood to present our souls to God. Isn't that wonderful? Well, I noticed that Dave prayed that I would be quick. I think he meant quickened. I hope he did. It's good to be with you. I want to start this morning with a quiz question from the scriptures. And um, I hope you have your thinking cap on. It's a sentence completion. And uh, the first half is this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, I think was the, any other answers? The beginning of wisdom. Okay, that's correct if you're thinking about Proverbs 1-7. But without looking, what does Proverbs 8-13 say? Excuse me, 8, is that right? Let me check that. 8-13, yeah. The beginning, uh, the fear of the Lord is, no, no, unless, I might, I might not be hearing it, but here's how you answer it in 8.13, the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil, the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil, and if you root around in the book of Proverbs, you quickly discover that um, there are a lot of things the Lord hates. For example, in 6, starting in verse 16, there are six things which the Lord hates, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, he hates hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil. He hates a false witness who utters lies and one who spreads strife among brothers. You know, this will just not do. This just will not fly in our politically correct society. All this hate speech coming from God. Now that I think of it, he's very politically incorrect, isn't he? All this talk of fearing him, that he is so holy that he's a jealous God, that he visits iniquity on the third and fourth generation, that vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He's looking forward, it seems, to being the one to wreak vengeance on his enemies. That he has a hell reserved for the disobedient. My, 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 my. Very incorrect. That he's a God of wrath that his anger can burst out and destroy whole cities and people groups with one breath, that he will by no means clear the guilty, the scriptures say. What about diplomacy? Very politically incorrect God. There was a theologian named Rudolf Otto who called this terrifying, wrathful, consuming fire side of God, the irrational side of God. Yet I'm going to attempt to prove to you this morning that this attribute of God, the wrath of God, is entirely reasonable, entirely necessary, and of great benefit to both the seeking sinner and the security of the believer. 
What is it that I want to say this morning? I want people to know man's true condition without Christ. I want you to agree with me that God's wrath is necessary. I want us to be overwhelmed with gratitude that Christ bore God's wrath for us in our place. And I want to ask us to apprehend the benefits even of believing in the reality of God's wrath. I want us to see a connection between the love of God and the wrath of God. I pray that God will give us spiritual eyes to see this morning along the lines of Proverbs 28.5, evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand all things. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand all things. So, let's begin our study with an assessment of the true condition of man. And the true condition without Christ of man is much worse than we think it is. In my systematic theology training at ORU, Dr. Charles Farah said this interesting thing. He said, one's theology flows from one's doctrine of man more than their doctrine of God. Let me say that again. One's theology is primarily developed by one's doctrine of man rather than one's doctrine of God. Because if you believe that man is basically good, then there's really no need for a savior or a sacrificial death or a cross. If you believe man is morally neutral, then you can take or leave the death of Christ. I remember my, in high school, before I was a Christian, I was attending Young Life meetings, and there was a kind speaker there, a man, and he would always present the gospel this way. He would, he would tell us at the end of his message that you can receive Jesus if you want as your Lord and Savior, or you don't have to. And I think he was trying to use our free will kind of as a way to make it okay for us to receive Christ. But in my gut, not even knowing the Bible, in my gut, I knew that was only half the truth. I sensed that there was something bad that was going to happen if I didn't receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. So if you believe man is good, there's no need for a Savior. If you believe he's morally neutral, you can take him or leave him on the cross. If you believe man is just morally sick, then man needs a physician, but not a savior. But if you believe man is thoroughly depraved, desperately corrupt, and spiritually dead, then you need a savior. I need a savior. Amen? This last position is the truth that the scriptures are trying to to portray to us. Those passages where Jesus says to the Pharisees, it's the sinners who need a physician. He's talking about why he hangs out with sinners. He's not talking about the depth of the sinner's depravity. Those those descriptions come in other places in the Bible. 
So that term great physician is, uh, I couldn't find it in the scriptures. I found the word physician where Jesus refers to himself metaphorically, but again, that was not a description of man's condition, just a metaphor to tell the Pharisees why he's hanging out with sinners. We need a savior. We need a savior when it comes to our sin. So here is the state of man. I'm going to give you five realities about man. The first one is from Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. These verses highlight the fact that man is dead. He's not sick without Christ. He's not sick. He is dead in his trespasses and sins. Verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Not a pretty picture, but I know that you can raise your hand with me and say, that was true of me. I was under the prince of the power of the air. I was a children, a child of wrath, but no longer. Secondly, natural man is hostile to God, the scripture says. So not only are we dead, but we are hostile to God. This is in Romans 8, 6 through 8. It says, For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is what? Hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. We are dead without Christ. We are hostile to God without Christ. And then the third description is that mankind is disobedient. One beautiful little book of the scripture that I don't think gets enough attention is the book of Titus. Our verses on this come from Titus 1, 15 and 16, and also 3, chapter 3, verse 3. Let me read them to you. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. So we are dead, we are disobedient, and we are hostile to God. Then Romans 6, verses 20 in 22, we read what? That we are also slaves of sin. You've heard these verses before, but let me read 20 through 22 to you. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you uh, then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? Anybody ashamed for some of the things they've done in the past? For the outcome of those things is death. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. Thank God for that. Thank God 
for that. Finally, the fifth descriptor is maybe the most, uh, the most uh, frightening descriptor of man without Christ, and that is that man without Christ is under the wrath of God. How many of you could recite John 3.16 for me if I were to ask you to? For God so loved the world. It's that verse. How many of you could recite John 3.36, the last verse of that chapter? Anybody? How many of you know what it says? Just off the top of your heads. Anybody? Very good, Art. Very good. Let me read it to you. John 3, the last verse of the very verse that talks about the love of God. It says this, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Wow. The wrath of God. I don't know if you noticed that the third verse of Ephesians 2 called us children of wrath, didn't it? Those who have yet to believe. The great saint Augustine wrote that when Adam sinned, the entire human race sinned in Adam, and we became what he called a massa damnata, which means um, a mass of damnation or a condemned crowd that we carry an indwelling sin nature that causes us to not be able not to sin. The Apostle Paul recognizes this, doesn't he? In verses uh, 20 and 21 of Romans 7, he says, if I'm doing the very thing I do not wish to do, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. He recognized that principle. I find then the principle that even is present in me, the one who wishes to do God. And then he cries out, and we cry out with him, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. So then on the one hand, he says, with my mind, I'm serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Jeremiah 9, 17 says the heart is deceitful and desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? 1 John 1.8 1 says, If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Can you agree with me that man is dead in his trespasses and sins, desperately corrupt and unable to help himself? This is the true condition of man without Christ. Let's move on. Point number two, the wrath of God is necessary. The wrath of God is necessary. There was a Christian evangelist named A.W. Pink who was ministering in the early uh, first half of the 1900s. He was a graduate of Moody Bible Institute, and he had a series of sermons on the attributes of God. And this is uh, a portion of his sermon on, on the wrath of God. He says this, 
Wrath is one of the divine perfections. Isn't that an interesting introduction? If God did not punish evildoers, he would be a party to evil doing. He would compromise with wickedness. He would condone sin. Of necessity, God is a God of wrath. Consider an argument from the less to the greater. In the human sphere, he who loves purity and chastity and has no wrath against impurity and unchastity is a moral leper. He who pities the poor and defenseless and has no wrath against the oppressor who crushes the weak and slays the defenseless but loves them too is a fiend. Divine wrath is divine holiness in activity. Because God is holy, he hates sin, and because he hates sin, his anger burns against the sinner. As it is written, thou hatest all workers of iniquity, and again, God is angry with the wicked every day. Another theologian, R.V.G. Tasker, who is, the, is or was the professor of New Testament exegesis at the University of London, he wrote, just as human love is deficient if the element of anger is entirely lacking, so too is anger an essential element of divine love. God's love is inseparably connected with his holiness and justice. He must therefore manifest anger when confronted with sin and evil. You know, when we're kids and um, we're fighting with our siblings, we run to mom and dad, you know, wanting justice, don't we? We run to them. I remember one time sneaking up behind my brother, and um, I thought it was really cool to, you know, stick your knuckle up like this when you hit him, when I hit him, because he would always do that into my arm like this. So I did that, you know, I pointed up my middle knuckle, and I hit him as hard as I could in the back. And then I ran into my parents' bedroom where they were having a candlelight dinner. And I grabbed their table and, and said, save me, save me. It was, like, it was like in the Old Testament going to that refuge city, to the, horn, you know, the horns on the altar, uh, and I was saved. I'm sure he got me back later. But don't we cry out for justice? Why is it that how many news junkies do we have in here? I mean, we'll watch hours of news hoping that some crumb of justice will come out of the TV and satisfy us. But no, there, you just don't seem to ever get that sense that there's justice out there. Who would want a father who never judged a situation? Who would want a father who would wink at your older brother after he just beat the heck out of you? Who would want a father who didn't care one whit about justice or never cared enough to punish even your own disobedience? Who would want a father like that? We want a heavenly father that disciplines and we want a, a heavenly father that disciplines us. I was 
thinking about this point, and I couldn't help but think of Hebrews 12, 5, and 6. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? We want a God who is just. We want a God who will judge, who will punish evil, who will exercise his wrath against sin, who is fearful in holiness who is jealous over what he loves, and who is protective of us. Knowing that in the wrath of God, there's none of the fickleness, none of the capriciousness, none of the weakness of human anger. Amen? Thank God he is a God of justice. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne, the scriptures say. Isaiah 61.8 says, For I, the Lord, love justice. Jeremiah 9.24, I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. I hope you by now will agree with me that the wrath of God is necessary. It's necessary and even desirable. Let's move on to the third point that Jesus bore the wrath of God. When uh, Dale Rotan was here for the missions conference, he had on his book table this book for sale uh, called Radical by David Platt. And I want to read uh, a bit of this book to you. I know that that's, uh, quotes can get long, but I don't think I could say it any better than he does how Jesus bore the wrath of God. So please hang with me as I read this to you. Picture Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. As he kneels before his father, drops of sweat and blood fall together from his head. Why is he in such agony and pain? The answer is not because he's afraid of crucifixion. He is not trembling because of what the Roman soldiers are about to do to him. Since that day, countless men and women in history, in the history of Christianity, have died for their faith. Some of them were not just hung on crosses, they were burned there. Many of them went to their crosses singing. One Christian in India, while being skinned alive, looked at his persecutors and said, I thank you for this. Tear off my old garment, for I will soon put on Christ's garment of righteousness. As he prepared to head to his execution, a saint named Christopher Love wrote a note to his wife saying, today they will sever me from my physical head, but they cannot sever me from my spiritual head, Christ. As he walked to his death, his wife applauded while he sang of glory. Did these men and women of Christian history have more courage than Christ himself? Why was he trembling in that garden, weeping and full of anguish? We can rest assured that he was not a coward about to face Roman soldiers. Instead, he was a savior about to endure divine wrath. Listen to his words. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. 
The cup is not a reference to a wooden cross. It is a reference to divine judgment. It is the cup of God's wrath. This is what Jesus is recoiling from in the garden. All God's holy wrath and hatred towards sin and sinners stored up since the beginning of the world is about to be poured out on him and he is sweating blood at the thought of it. What happened at the cross was not primarily about nails being thrust into Jesus' hands and feet, but about the wrath due your sin and my sin being thrust upon his soul. In that holy moment, all the righteous wrath and justice of God due us came rushing down like a torrent on Christ himself. This is the gospel. The just and loving creator of the universe has looked upon hopelessly sinful people and sent his son, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin in the resurrection so that all who trust in him will be reconciled to God forever. It's so easy for us to slip into a humanistic gospel, isn't it? Where it's all about us. It's all about Him loving us enough to come and die for us, which is all true, but if you stop there and you don't look at, at, at what was going on with God the Father, you end up with a hollow gospel. You end up with a man-centered gospel. You end up with less than the full truth. I want you to again this morning apprehend that reality, the full gospel of Jesus Christ. Platt goes on to say, talk about how we, when we give a uh, salvation appeal, how we talk about accepting Jesus and how that's really the wrong language. He says, you will not find an emphasis in the scriptures on accepting Jesus. We have taken the infinitely glorious Son of God who endured the incredible, terrible wrath of God and who now reigns as the infinitely worthy Lord of all and we have reduced him to a poor puny Savior who is just begging for us to accept him. Accept him? Do we really think Jesus needs our acceptance? No, it's, it's we who need him. You know, even translators of the scriptures uh, fight this idea of, of God's wrath being appeased in Christ. Um, one place that you see it is in 1 John 2.2, 2, where it's taught, it, well, let me just read you four versions. The first version is the King James Version. Excuse me, I need to back up for a minute. Um, the translators to describe Christ's sacrifice on the cross typically choose between one of two words. They choose between the word expiation and the word propitiation. Now, the word expiation means to pay the penalty of. It emphasizes the sacrificial death of someone for someone else. Propitiation is the word that incorporates the idea that a, there's an angry God who needs to be appeased. It means to regain the favor of someone or to appease an angry God. 
Now let's look at the verse, 1 John 2, verse 2. In the King James Version, it reads this way. King James Version gets it right. They say, and he, Christ, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The NIV, in my opinion, kind of muddies it a little bit, even though it's correct. It says he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. The Living Bible, which I hope you know is not a translation, but a transliteration, says, um, says it quite clearly. He is the one who took God's wrath against our sins upon himself and brought us into fellowship with God. And then the RSV, Revised Standard Version, gets it wrong, in my opinion. It says, and he is the expiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The RSV translators were more liberal in leaning, and uh, they just weren't comfortable with this idea that God is a God of wrath. They just wanted to emphasize the sacrificial death of Christ as a substitutionary death, but nothing about God's anger or wrath being appeased in Christ. I don't know how many of you were here when Richard Wormbrand was on this stage and he talked about how the sacrifice, in the sacrifice of Christ, Christ was reaching up to the face of God and smoothing out the wrinkles on his face. Anybody remember that? Anybody remember him reaching up and smoothing out the wrinkles on God's face? We hear the saying, his love provided what his holiness demanded. And we also remember Billy Graham said, in the cross of Christ, I see three things. First, a description of the depth of man's sin. Second, the overwhelming love of God. And third, the only way of salvation. Aren't you grateful to God for Jesus who bore on his back your sins and mine and bore in his body the wrath of God? Finally, let's talk about the benefits of believing that the wrath of God is a reality. First, I think it brings comfort to those who are secure in Christ, to those who are the redeemed of Christ. Uh, Bill passed this book on to me for a little help for this message called Counterfeit Gospels by Trevin Wax. And there's a chapter where he's talking about a judgmentless gospel, how that is a counterfeit gospel. And he uses this illustration. He says, our two-year-old daughter is just now learning to walk, and we are just now learning to understand her. Excuse me, talk, and we are just now learning to understand her. Whenever she bumps her head on the table or gets her fingers caught in a drawer, she cries as she exclaims to us what happened. My wife and I know that she'll calm down faster if we bang the table or pound the drawer. Bad table, bad drawer. I'm not sure why this brings our daughter comfort. It doesn't make her pain go away any quicker. We don't do it because the inanimate object is guilty of anything. 
No, I believe our daughter is consoled because in her little brain, she senses that justice, however strange in this case, has somehow been served. Even as children, we possess an innate sense of right and wrong. Humans are united by a desire for justice. We realize that life isn't fair, and yet for some reason, we also think it should be fair. The Bible teaches that life isn't fair now. And yet scripture still points to a day when wrongs will be righted and justice will be served. God will straighten things out once and for all. We're comforted that someday justice will be served. But even now we are secure in Christ because we have, we have jumped upon his mercy. And if any of you here who... That, you know, maybe you have not fully, fully surrendered to Jesus Christ. I beg you today to throw yourself upon God's mercy and live for him and know that you are secure in Christ and you are his. Secondly, a benefit is it's a reality check about the gravity of our sin, isn't it? The wrath of God is a reality check about the gravity of our sin. Jesus warned us that the human heart is the locus of evil. He said this, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things that defile the man. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point He has become guilty of all. The wrath of God is a reality check about the gravity of our sin and that God doesn't just wink at sin, but he cares enough that he sent his only son and crushed him on the cross underneath his wrath. A third benefit is it is an impetus for full surrender to God. I couldn't help but read, reread Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And I want you to get a feel for um, his work. He's preaching and he says, Thus it is that natural men are held in the hand of God over the pit of hell. They have deserved the fiery pit and are already sentenced to it. And God is dreadfully provoked. His anger is as great towards them as to those that are actually suffering in the executions of the fierceness of his wrath in hell. And they have done nothing in the least to appease or abate that anger. Neither is God in the least bound by any promise to hold them up for one moment. The devil is waiting for them. Hell is gaping for them. The flames gather and flash about them and would fain lay hold on them and swallow them up. The fire pent up in their own hearts is struggling to break out, and they have no interest in any mediator. There is no means within their reach that can be any security to them. In short, they have no refuge, nothing to take hold of. All that preserves them every moment is the mere arbitrary will and uncovenanted, unobliged forbearance of an incensed God. It's a provocation to sinners to surrender to Jesus Christ. 
But for us believers and for these sinners, when you consider the price Christ paid and the Father's expressed love in Christ, how can anyone not surrender their life, their all, to so great a salvation? How can anyone not fall to their knees in humble adoration as they hear Christ call out from the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As we see his bleeding and tortured frame, that sorrow and love flowing mingled down, how can anyone not bow their knees in humble surrender? Again, if any of you don't know Christ today, I beg you to come into his kingdom, to surrender to him. Or if any of us have believed in a somewhat hollow, superficial gospel, I pray that we might change our mind and be filled with gratitude for all that Christ did. Finally, one last motivation, and that is that believing in the reality of the wrath of God is certainly a motivation for evangelism. If people without Christ are truly the living dead, if people without Christ are truly not able to help themselves, if people without Christ are truly under the wrath of God and children of wrath, if people without Christ are truly under the prince of the power of the air, if people without Christ are truly storing up wrath for themselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, as Romans says, then I want to share the love of Christ with them. Share about the one who bore their sins, enduring the wrath of God, that he has been raised up and is the Lord of all. Would you stand with me and let's just honor the Lord and pray a prayer together. If you need to receive Jesus, I would like to ask you to raise your hand high even as you stand. If this is the first time that you would say, I surrender to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I ask you to raise your hand high. Don't be bashful. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. If you've been believing in somewhat of a humanistic gospel, uh, not a full gospel, and you kind of you, you recognize that and you're feeling that depth of spirit that is the conviction of the Holy Spirit, I'd also ask you to just raise your hand to God and then let's pray together. Father, we do just bow before you in humble thanks and adoration that you not only endured the physical suffering of the cross in our behalf, but you also took the sins of the world on your back. And even that wasn't all. You bore the wrath of God against sin in our stead. Thank you for smoothing out the wrinkles 
on the Father's face that now we can be secure in Christ. Thank you that you're a God of justice. Thank you that you will judge on judgment day. Thank you that you will right every wrong. Father, thank you that you're protective in your love of your children who belong to you. We just are amazed, Lord, and we really acknowledge that we don't totally understand this great mystery of how your wrath and your love are inextricably combined. But we pray in the days ahead that you would give us greater insight, especially as we approach the Easter season, Lord. May our focus be upon you and upon the sacrifice that you made, that you bore, and then how you rose from the dead, giving hope and salvation to all mankind. We ask you for your Holy Spirit to be teaching us in these days. We, we know that as long as we're on this earth, we will never fathom the depth of what you've done or fathom your word, but we pray that we would grow increasingly in the knowledge of God. We uh, pray for a good week, Lord, and uh, we thank you in Jesus' wonderful name. I want to read one last verse in closing. This is from 1 Thessalonians 5. It says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this morning. Bill says that I should go ahead and dismiss. So Lord, we just uh, again ask you for a good week. We pray that we would be devoted to you, Lord. We pray that we would be mindful of you each and every moment, that we'd be communing with you. We also pray, Lord, for opportunities to share this great truth with sinners. Help us to have compassion, Lord, as we realize how dead, how disobedient, how unable to help ourselves we are without Christ. We thank you for saving us, and we ask you to help us be more effective in uh, helping others to surrender to you. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. We ask for your dismissal now. In Jesus' name, amen.